Welcome again. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jacob. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, we are going to be beginning this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians together. Um, if you've been with us or uh, been around Veritas for any length of time, you've known that we've been in Genesis for a really, really long time. Uh, kind of a pony trick of Ryan's, but he did this in the offices with me a couple weeks ago. I asked him how many sermons we had preached through in Genesis. I was kind of just wondering, and he literally counted. In his head, 54 sermons. He knows he's that much of a Bible nerd, just like me. Like, and, and he knows how many sermons we preached through Genesis, 54 sermons. We were there for a while. But now we're going to be started in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the kind of game plan for how we're going to be going about this is for the next uh, number of months, we will be in chapters 1 through 8 this fall. We'll take a quick break in Isaiah over Advent, uh, the Christmas time season, and then we'll jump into chapters 9 through 16 in the spring. Uh, but one of the exciting things of going through 1 Corinthians together is what we've done is we've put together a series guide for you. Um, this series guide, you can see an example of it, up, it'll come up on the screen, um, is a digital guide that you can download at VeritasFable.com and on our series page, on our website, but it's right there on the home screen. You click a button, it's right there on your phone, your tablet, your, any device that you have. It's totally digital, online. We're not going to print these things. So if you want a print copy, you can print one for yourself at home from your printer that you have from 1997 or all those other printers that had to come with those laptops that you bought from uh, Best Buy before it closed, right? So <laughs> if you want a print version, I'm sorry, but uh, this digital guide is one I hope is going to unify us together as a church as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, passage by passage. Uh, you can see an example of this uh, come up on the screen as well. Um, we have put together both observations, general observations, and, and questions for you to be able to walk together, both individually and in your community groups. And what we hope that does is uh, there's a whole bunch of questions in there, more than you could get through in a group study. Hopefully, you'll be coming to these studies, to the community groups, through the uh, or discipleship groups that you're a part of within the church, uh, are ready and willing to talk about these passages in 1 Corinthians, kind of chomping at the bit to get at what Paul was really all about here. Um, what we really hope in, in walking through a, a book like 1 Corinthians, though, um, is something that we feel pretty unified together as leadership as a church. Uh, if you know anything about uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written by Paul to this really messy broken, jacked-up church in Corinth. I mean, they were uh, marked by, and the whole letter is marked by, division. Uh, we'll get to that next week. Uh, but division over kind of what to do with Christian celebrities, who do you follow, whose podcast have you signed up for, that kind of business. But then also, sexual immorality that was kind of rampant in the church. It was wild, y'all. Like, it was absolutely wild in this church. Some other things that we'll see in, in the book, and kind of uh, just as an overview of the letter, the book will open up with a, 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 a opening and Paul's thanksgiving, which is what we'll look at today. It will very quickly move into division within the church. Now, actually, they should be boasting in Christ in chapters 1 through 4. Uh, sexual immorality, lawsuits, principles for marriage, that's going to be fun. Uh, chapters 5 through 7. Then we'll look at idolatry, what to do with food sacrificed to idols, because, you know, that's all we talk about nowadays is food sacrificed to idols, right? No, actually, it's very relevant for our lives, and we'll see why that's the case in chapters uh, um, 8 through 10. Then finally, we'll get to orderly Christian worship uh, in 11 through 14, and then Paul's going to hammer 
the resurrection in chapter 15 together. Paul closes out the book with one final, uh, his travel plans and some final exhortations from him. And so you might be asking the question, with all this kind of big problems represented in this letter, this book of 1 Corinthians, why in the world are we preaching through something like this? In this day and age, at this point in history, where in the news, even recently, it's like, well, yep, look, another church scandal. Look at another reason why some people are leaving the church because of abuse or neglect or things that are broken and messed up or, well, the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites, right? No, this is exactly why we need to preach through 1 Corinthians. This is why we need to look at this letter together. It's because, turns out, we as the church aren't that much different than the church in Corinth. We are broken. But the good news is that the good news that Paul preached to this Corinthian church that we're going to see again today, the same good news that we need to hear this morning. We need to hear these teachings through the voice of Apostle Paul. And our hope for this series is that we, as we walk together, passage by passage through this book, God's going to unify what is divided within us. We've entitled this sermon series, A Church Divided, Now United. And the only thing that we can truly unite around totally and completely with no division, Jesus. That's it. That's going to be Paul's main theme throughout the letter, week after week after week. Yes, we also need to be shaped by his biblical teachings on sex and idolatry and worship and Christian celebrities and spiritual gifts and how we're to relate to one another. But again and again, he's going to land us on the gospel and how we are united in Jesus. Paul is going to call the Corinthian church, but also to us as well, to a level of relational ownership with one another that might make you uncomfortable. Like, you should care about the sin of others. You should care about your own sin and how it affects others within the church. We hope to see that relational ownership take root within this church body. This church body right here. The one I'm speaking to right now on this Sunday morning at this point in history the Bible wants us to be unified together as a people. In short, we hope to move as a church from being a church divided by our differences to being united in Jesus. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we're going to jump into the text together. Pray with me, church. God, I pray that you would unify us by your word, by your spirit, that you would do the work you promised to do, that you've shown through your word, that the note that you resoundingly hit through these scriptures again and again to us, Jesus, is a word of grace. A word of grace um, that saves us, that sanctifies us, that keeps us until the day that you return to make all things new. God, um, for those of us here in this room that they, they feel the, the hurt, the abuse, and the neglect, the, maybe even they have the doubts of, is this church really a safe place? Can church be a safe place? Can it be a place where I'm known and not judged for those things, but rather offer the good news of the gospel? God, may it be so. Would you meet us in those places of hurt? Would you meet us in those places of brokenness? God, for those of us that are excited to be here this morning, that want nothing more than to hear again of the good news of the gospel as shown in your word, God, meet them with the joy that they so readily desire to be met with in you. God, I pray for all of us 
God, that we really would seek to be a people united in Jesus, not divided by our, our interest in one thing or another or our preferences, but God, that we would be united in you. I pray that in your name. Amen. And the church said, Amen. All right, so go ahead and grab your Bible. Meet me in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, if, if you're new to the Bible or if you don't have one, if you grab one of those black hardback ones on the way in and uh, you don't own a Bible, you can have that Bible that you picked up at the, at the table back there. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. And um, it's going to be really important because uh, you're going to need to look at it this morning. Put your nose in the book. See the words on the page. It doesn't matter what I say up here at the front as long as it, if, if it doesn't accord with these words, this is the very word of God to us. It doesn't matter what I have to say. It doesn't matter what my opinion is, right? These are the words of life, not the ones that come out of my mouth. So the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're new to the Bible, near the back half of it, if you hit the maps, you've gone too far. You know, um, it's right after Romans. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, the patient pastoral apostle, begins his letter to the church at Corinth like this. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's stop there. Now, after what I've already said about 1 Corinthians and this church and how jacked up and broken they are, I mean, is Paul even writing to the same people here? I mean, all the rampant sexual immorality, all the, the crazy idol worship, all, the, all that stuff. And this is the way he starts his letter? I mean, if you or I were writing to the Corinthian church, just imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second, right? You may have started your letter uh, like this, by like maybe just getting straight to the point. How many parents in the room, you know, like you go approach your child after they've done something horrifically wrong, right? Something terribly wrong. My knee-jerk reaction in that moment is to be like, Levi, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. You know, that's not my knee-jerk reaction. It's like, stop it. You just, no. You know, that's the first word out of my mouth. But Paul, again, he's the, he's the patient apostle here. He's writing to the Corinthians as his beloved here. Like, he loves these people. See, Paul could have, like, steered right into them. He could have, like, just started his letter, kind of, like, mocking them to kind of <clears throat> try to get them to stop what they're doing, to shame them out of doing all the bad things they're doing. Or he could have just kind of, like, at that time, on the, on the parchment paper, just traced a picture of his middle finger just saying, stop it, sign Paul, right? Get that off to of them, just stop. Maybe he could have done that. Maybe you or I would have done that. 
about Paul. This is how he starts his letter. He starts his letter with grace. He starts his letter with speaking gospel truth over these, and he calls them saints. Maybe you're new to the Bible, and Paul is an unfamiliar figure to you, right? Paul, if you, if you remember from uh, back in Sunday school, for those who grew up in the church, he's a former persecutor of Jesus' followers. He's read through Acts before. This guy was bad, like bad to the bone. He witnessed the, the stoning of Stephen. Like one of the first followers of Jesus proclaiming, like he's named as like one of the deacon-like guys in the church. Like he approves of his stoning, like stoning, like they took big rocks and threw him at them until he died. Not, not, they didn't get him high, right? No, they did. They beat him with rocks until he died. This is Paul. He's a bad dude. He's going around murdering Christians, but now he's been saved. He's been saved by Jesus. He's an apostle now to the Gentiles, what they call the non-Jewish folk. And Paul, what he's been doing for the past number of years, he's been going around planting churches. This is why we as a church are committed to seeing other churches planted around the world. We support, and if you give to Veritas, know that you give to a number of church plants, and Pillar Church in Pillar Okinawa, that you give to Redeemer Al Ain that's in the UAE. You give to George, South Africa, Grace Church there. Like those churches around the world, this is what Paul was doing, planting churches all over the place. And apparently this Corinthian church, you only got a little bit of snippet of it in Acts 18, but this church grew. See, the ESV study Bible says this uh, about the Apostle Paul and his ministry. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church in the spring of somewhere around uh, AD 53, 54, or 55. This is the near end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus. Altogether, there were four letters that we know about that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and we only have two of them. There was an initial letter that Paul mentions later in the letter, right? Then there's 1 Corinthians that we have. Then there's a third letter that's also, we don't have it either. It was a tearful, mournful, sorrowful letter where he's kind of, he really is uh, pleading with them over their sin and pleading with them over their division. And then finally, we have 2 Corinthians as well. Now, church, you do not need to worry about these other two letters about why aren't they in our Bible? Why don't we have 1, 2, 3, and 4 Corinthians here? No, the Bible that you have in front of you, I want to reassure you, this is God's word for you. If God wanted you to have 1, 2, and 3 Corinthians, you'd have it but we don't. And, and the Bible wasn't just compiled. It wasn't like a conspiracy theory of men with, with white beards, you know, in a room somewhere, kind of like, oh, how can we just make sure what we've got going on in our, you know, things that we desire are going to make sure that they make it into the scriptures. No. The church, the bride of Christ, she affirmed these scriptures, because what happened is those letters like 1 Corinthians or Philippians or Ephesians, those other kind of pastoral epistles, got started passed around among the churches. People started preaching these books, reading these books, and gathered worship just like this. And when the church would gather on a Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection, and they started realizing these words are the words of very life for us. They speak gospel truth to our hearts. They reveal us. They, they cut us to the quick. As it says elsewhere in Scripture, that the Spirit reveals himself through these words. Even Peter writes about Paul's teaching and says, some of the things he says, yes, are hard to understand, but other people twist them like they do the other scriptures. This 
for us, church, First and Second Corinthians is the scripture that God breathed for us through the Apostle Paul. And this was written to, at this time, the Corinthian church. So who is the Corinthian church? The Corinthian church, we know that they were a, 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 Paul, a, plant, a church plant by Paul, and, and history has a lot to say about Corinth, but all we really need to know is what's revealed here in the Bible. See, Corinth was known as a kind of wealthy port city in, in modern-day Greece. Corinth was often well-known for being uh, kind of rich, kind of bougie, but also superly, super-sexually immoral, right? So much so that the NIV uh, Study Bible comments this, so widely known did the immorality of Corinth become that the Greek verb, like the Greek verb that they used to uh, say Corinthianize, came to mean to practice sexual immorality. So uh, you or I, we live in Fayetteville, right? I, I kind of shudder to think about what it means to Fayetteville someone, but I'll let you figure out that, and maybe before our brains go in a million different directions, uh, let's just let's remember that as we go through this letter, we're going to see just how deep the rabbit hole goes with all the things that Paul's going to need to correct in this jacked-up church, and that Paul could have started his letter in any number of ways, but the first note he hits is one of grace. What we're going to see this morning is three main things in Paul's introduction to the Corinthians. Paul wants them to remember grace. Grace that saves, grace that sanctifies, and grace that sustains. And all this points to the truth of the gospel. Grace that saves, sanctifies, and sustains. See, the first thing we should see about this introduction from Paul is that he wants us to see a grace that saves. So what do we mean by grace? Oftentimes when we come to church or a setting like this, or you grew up in the church, you kind of throw that word grace along or, or, or around, and we even just sang about it. This is amazing grace. When we, when we use a word like that all the time, sometimes it begins to lose its meaning. Or we forget what it really is trying to get across as a term. So let's define terms. I used to be a teacher, so this is kind of my bread and butter, what I like to do. Here you go. Grace. Grace is the un the free and unmerited favor of God. Free. What do we mean by free? It means you, you didn't earn it. You didn't do something to deserve it. You didn't, you didn't work hard enough to kind of buy grace for yourself so that you could get favor of God. No, it's free. And second, it's unmerited favor of God. There's nothing intrinsic to you or to me or anyone else that receives grace that means that they deserve it. You weren't born into it. You didn't like uh, acclimate to it. You don't deserve it as a status. You don't get grace by trying to, uh, to climb a ladder somehow or just because you are who you are. No, grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. Free, unmerited. And what does Paul see this free and unmerited favor of God doing? He sees this grace as a grace that has saved them in Christ freely without merit. These Corinthians, these messed up, jacked up believers, like you and me, right? Receiving grace of God that's free and unmerited. This emphasis also in the first part of this is on that he has saved them as well. Look again at verse four with me. Look at verse four. This is something Paul has seen. He's already been accomplished. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that, what's that word there? Was. Was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were 
enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, that even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift. See, this is a grace that's already been accomplished. It's already been given. It's not something that we could earn for ourselves or do to, to be given by God. It's something that's already been accomplished by Christ. In the good news of the gospel, Paul is reminding them just from the outset, you didn't do anything to deserve this. You, have the affections of God have been set on you, not because of some type of merited favor, but because God has chosen freely to set his love upon you as Corinthians, as the church, as God's chosen one. As Ephesians would say, holy and beloved of God. This is the grace that Paul's talking about. But Paul also sees this grace as evidence by certain things. It has evidences. It means that you could see that it's there because these things are, are present. Paul sees these evidences of saving grace in a few ways. Look at verse 5. They've been made rich in all speech and knowledge. That means they've been, they've been given spiritual gifts and special knowledge about God that the rest of the world didn't have. There's other places around that, that area of Greece where they haven't heard the good news of the gospel, but not at Corinth. They've heard good news of the gospel. They've been enriched with speech and special knowledge about God that the rest of the world just didn't have. Verse 6, that the confirmation of the testimony of Christ, they actually believed the gospel. They didn't just hear it, they believed it. It was confirmed among them. Then in verse 9, this is, might be the most glorious of all. They've been called into the fellowship of Jesus. They've been brought in and made part of the family of God. And all that, all by grace. A saving grace in them. What this means for us this morning is that if you're here and you have believed simple gospel, that Jesus died for your sin, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, raised to new life for you to abolish sin and death in your place forever, these same things have happened for you. You have been given spiritual knowledge. You have been given spiritual gifts. You have had the testimony of Christ affirmed in you by belief in that gospel, and you've been called into the fellowship of Jesus. You are a child of God. Whether you, it's hard for you to believe that in this moment or not, it's already true about you if you believe the good news of the gospel. And all of that, by grace. See, if that's you, and, and you have come to faith recently, maybe you're in a season of life where everything in your life looks absolutely out of control and messy, but that there's one thing that's true in your life, that you believe the good news of the gospel, guess what? The rest of your life, it's going to work itself out over time. Belief in what Jesus has already done for you, that is what is central about you. That is your core identity. That will define you for eternity. All the other circumstantial stuff may last for just a moment, but everything else in the gospel is going to re remain true for you for eternity. So you need to do something about that. If you believe, if you have believed, and you haven't told somebody that you've now become a follower of Jesus, you just need to tell somebody. Let me just tell you, it'll be one of the most joyous experiences in your life. You ever going to met someone 
that was kind of wearing the same hat as you, or maybe the same outfit, or you're celebrating the same thing that you're celebrating. Maybe your team won the Super Bowl, and you saw, saw another guy who's dressed in the same whatever, uh, you know, just won the Super Bowl, and you do the high five, whatever. Just think of that times eternity. Because, yes, yeah, Super Bowls may last for a moment. But guess what? Belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus lasts for eternity. And so we want to celebrate that with you. Even next week, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put a trough down there, and we're going to baptize people because people have come to faith in Jesus. And we're going to go nuts because it's one of the best things that we get to do as a church is recognize the fact that Jesus brings people from death to life. The best news about you. Tell somebody. Come to the back of the room pray with the pastors or some of the leaders. We've got men and women back there who would love to pray with you, but also get baptized. And if you've come to faith in Jesus recently and you haven't partnered together with this church as a covenant partner, come on, jump in. We want to link arms with you. We want to say, no, we're going to be about you. We're going to take uh, discipleship, of you, discipleship of you seriously. We want to pray for you, especially when you're sick. We're going to come around you, take ownership of you as a, as a follower of Jesus. And partnering together with this church just means so much. Because it means that other people are affirming what's already been made true in you in Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus. Paul doesn't just stop there with a grace that saves. He moves on to a grace that sanctifies. See, if, if grace saves is the past tense, the grace that sanctifies is one that Paul sees as in the present tense. It's in the right here, the right now. And so so do we, what do we mean by sanctification? That's something we say around here often is that sanctification is just growing to look more and more like Jesus. Now, in my mind, if, the, if you were to graph that on a chart in, in, in my life, I would really like for that chart to look like one line, kind of just going straight up over time like this, growing to more, look more and more like Jesus over time. But you know what it often looks like in my life? Like this, like up, down, backwards, maybe some scribbles in there somewhere just absolutely all over the place because growing to look more like, more like Jesus over time should be true of you as a follower of Jesus, but like the trajectory of anything but a straight line in just one direction. It's just really hard to see that, and we'll see that all over 1 Corinthians. So what does that actually look like? Growing more and more, look like, look, looking like Jesus, means saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. It means delighting less in the things of our flesh and the world, and delighting more in God, finding our identity, our purpose, our value, and who God says we are and who we try to define ourselves as. See, this is what Paul says by not lacking any gift here. He's referring to these gifts of grace that we may receive when we say no to sin and yes to God. And each and every moment in our lives that it happens, Let's look at that shift that happens between verses 6 and 7 from the past tense to the present tense. Look at verse 6 again. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, past tense, so you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, present tense. See the shift. You are not lacking. When? Right here, right now, presently, as you choose to say yes to God and no to sin, as you wait for Jesus to return, the grace of Jesus is to meet us right now with everything 
we need to sanctify us in the moment. That means when we are presented with opportunities to say yes to sin and no to God, we have everything we need in those moments. We are not lacking in the spiritual gifts in that moment to say yes to Jesus and no to the things that we desire. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the videos or like the kind of social experiment of, of leave, leaving a child alone in a room with a marshmallow. Have y'all seen this before? The social experiment, it is a very uh, big study, whatever. I was a teacher, and so we got to hear about all that in our psychology classes and stuff. But what they did was um, they would leave a child alone uh, in a room with a marshmallow on a plate and say, hey, you could have this marshmallow right now. doesn't matter. You can eat it. Or you can have five marshmallows after I leave the room and then come back. And so the, the guy doing this, the social experiment would be sitting across from me, he'd stand up, he'd walk out of the room, and he'd close the door, and then they had cameras on these kids. And it's cute. I mean, just Google it. It's, it's, it's hilarious. And you just watch these kids just squirm and just in the chair, just like, I want the marshmallow. Give me the marshmallow. It's just right there in front of them, right? And all they got to do is reach out and eat it, and they can have it. Or they can wait, get five marshmallows, when the person comes back in the room. You could probably guess where this is going, right? <laughs> what do the majority of the kids do? They take the, take the marshmallow, right? It's sitting right there. The temptation is just too much for them to bear. And then they, they reap the consequences afterwards. You know, the person comes back into the room. They explain, okay, where'd the marshmallow go? <laughs> Some kids are like, I don't know. But yeah, the, the guy that talks to him is like, yeah, you can't have five marshmallows or whatever. And the, the social experiment continues. It's not so for us, church. In that time, we, when we are presented with opportunities for sin, to kind of have the thing that we think we want here in the moment, set right in front of us, we think we want it. We think we'll get what we desire in that moment, but it's only a temporary satisfaction. It's only something that's very fleeting. That marshmallow is gone in a second. What God offers for us in the gospel is a grace that sanctifies us. It sanctifies us to say, no, sin, and also, yes, the greater, the better, the good thing. Because it's not just a marshmallow that's waiting for us. It's a five-course dinner, right? Like, real communion with God and a real depth of relationship with, with Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of our desires are met there. And not just the, the carnal, I want the marshmallows in front of me type desires, but like the deep-seated, I need soul rest. Because this life is moving faster than I could ever try to cling on to. Like there's so much news to consume. There's so many books to read. There's so many good things I could be doing. End up every day feeling like a bit of a failure because you didn't do all. Where's peace at in this world? Found in Jesus. Where's hope found? It's only found in Jesus. This is what Paul is offering here. You have everything you need. You're not lacking in any gift. He will meet you in those moments with the gift of faith needed to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. Here's what we do. When we are presented with opportunities to say yes to Jesus and no to sin, and maybe you're in a season or pattern of life where you're just like, man, I feel like I've been beaten up spiritually for months, for years, for weeks. I don't know what's true for you. But what do we do when it feels like, man, I want to be sanctified. I've seen growth in my life as a follower of Jesus, but it feels like I still fall prey to the same 
old stuff all the time. Here's what we don't do. First thing we don't do is we don't give up. Don't give up and give in. This could be an inclination of you. You can have a defeatist kind of mentality and say, you know what? You know what? If Jesus wanted me to stop this sin, he'd just stop me. He's, he's, he's God, right? He can just stop that. He can just cut that off. Just make that not happen anymore, right? No. You can't do that. Maybe it's like this. Maybe you've tried to fight in your battle with sin. It's like going to the gym for like a week and expecting to step on the scales and to lose 10 pounds. Like with like one week in the gym. Is that a healthy expectation? No. None of us would agree to that. And if that does happen to you, like, you need to talk to a doctor, bro. Like, something bad happened to you. You know, like, you got a tumor or something. You know? Something's bad. But in our walk with, as followers of Jesus, it's not a healthy expectation. We try to just gut it out or, or just get, try to buckle ourselves up for a little bit and see only no progress relatively over time. See, discipline is a good thing. Discipline is a good thing. We, we must not give up and give in. But also in the retrospect of that, on the other side, the pendulum can swing too far in the opposite direction, where we just buckle down in our own strength. I'm here to tell you, tell you guys, like I'm, I've been in Fayetteville for long enough, a lot of us are military, a lot of us are kind of strong-willed folks. See, if you try to white-knuckle your way to holiness, that holiness will not be real. It will not be marked by Jesus. You can white-knuckle your way out of sinful practice. You can do it. I've done it. I've done it in my own life. But I found myself more hollow at the end of that than I actually was beforehand. Where I was just struggling day by day, just throwing myself on the mercies of Jesus, saying like, Jesus, you've got to change. You've got to help me here. That is a life worth living. Not the one where you just white-knuckle it and lose your soul in the process of thinking that you're a morally superior person. You know what that's called? That's, that's, that's being a Pharisee. That's being a hypocrite. That's like the opposite of what Jesus has called us to. You cannot white-knuckle your way to holiness. Instead, here's what we do. Here's what we do. Like Paul does here, he just bathes the Corinthians in the gospel. You've got to do this for yourself. You've got to take ownership of your own discipleship here by gospeling yourself. So day by day, when you're offered when there's opportunities for you to believe something about yourself that Christ doesn't said about you or has it made uh, true about you through, his, through the gospel, you have to fight the lies with gospel truth. Speak the gospel over yourself. Speak the truth about who Jesus is, what he's done, what that means about you constantly. And guess what? I'm not going to be there to preach for you tomorrow morning when you're looking in the mirror and there's a lie looking at you right in the face. You've got to do that work yourself. It is your turn, sister. That is your turn, brother, to gospel and proclaim the gospel to yourself. Journal it. Speak it. Pray it. Look like a crazy person driving to work, just screaming gospel truth, you know? Do whatever it takes. You know, go take a, a hike in the woods and just prayer march. I don't know. Like, what have you got to do to speak gospel truth over yourself? Do it. Second, too, this is not something we can do by ourselves. That's what Paul is doing here for us. He's showing the Corinthians need gospel. They need someone else saying it to them. So you are called follower of Jesus, gospel others, to take ownership of their discipleship as well. You should be like Paul here, speaking gospel truth over 
other people in your community group, people that you get together with. Maybe you're in a discipleship group with two or three other people. I'll just need to get together, open the Bible, and say, here's where I need you to, to remind me of gospel truth. Here's the lies that I'm tempted to believe, and just let them do work. Let them do work in you, saying, like, no, that lie is not true. You are valuable. You know why? Christ died for you. No, you are lovely in the eyes of God. God sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees you. No, you are saved. You are being sanctified. You get to say these things over other people because it's what God has already made true of them in the gospel anyway. This grace that sanctifies us, Paul also says that this grace also sustains us. Let's look lastly at verse 7 through 9 again. Look at verse 7. Paul says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Did he just say guiltless? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called to the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul wants this messy Corinthian church to know that the God who confirmed the testimony about Jesus Christ and then brought them to faith, not only going to supply them with faith in the moment to say yes to Jesus and no to sin, he's going to sustain them in faith by grace to the end. Till the day that Jesus comes back and makes all things. And so what end are we talking about here? What end does Paul have in mind? See, Paul he, he grew up with the, the Jewish idea of the day of the Lord, the day of atonement, the, the day that, that separated all of human history, where everything was building up to this one day and everything was a watershed on the other side. That day, in Paul's mind, got two markers in history. One, happened already on the cross in the personal work of Jesus. That all sin for all believers would be nailed to that cross, that the suffering and the shame that I deserved for my sin would be dealt with with Jesus on that cross, and Jesus would only bear that, die, he would be laid in a grave. And it would look like all hope was lost, that the Messiah, the God-man, the one come for us to save us from our sin, to take death and shame on for us, that God-man should prove that he was the king of all of the universe because he not only died for our sin, atoning for it, but he raised to new life in all power, in all victory over all death, all sin for all time, he now stands and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, pleading our case before him, that his righteousness stands in our place, that he is king over all things, that Jesus is Lord of lords, like we sang about. This is the good news of the gospel, and that day is going to come when that king comes back and makes all things new. See, before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the, of the Father, he promised that he was going to come back. He's going to make all things new. And on that day, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For the believer, we will fall on bid to knee, willingly, because this is the Savior that we have been waiting for. The rest of the world that still remains in their sin and in their death. Their knees will be forced to the ground 
in their shame because this is the king who will pour out wrath among those who do not believe. And that is why before Jesus ascended on high, he sent us, yes, us, the church, us here in this room to go to all peoples, all nations, proclaiming the good news of the gospel that the king has come. And the good news is that that wrath that is deserved for sin, you don't need to bear it. That thing that used to define you doesn't anymore. Jesus has come for you, to welcome you into his family, to bring faith into your life. It's God's grace that doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us. This is shown in the gospel as we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. See, Paul in Ephesians 1 says it this way, that we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's power to go out of here as, as followers of Jesus proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the world, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Philippians, he says that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Maybe most notably of all, Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. This will come up on the screen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. These were predestined to look like Jesus. He's going to do this work. So in order that he might be the firstborn of many, among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What did he notice about all that language? Past tense. It's already been done. The work of Christ, Paul sees as is already accomplished in us. The way that God sees us right now, this is perfected, beautiful, who, who we will be. Yet he loves us right now in the moment for who we are. He remembers who we are now and who we will be. This is the God that we serve. Not just about the end, of the, the end game for him, but also our present condition. He cares about both equally, and he's there because he stands outside of time. God is a huge God that cannot be comprehended. He stands at all points at history because he reigns supreme over it. Church, do you not realize we as Jesus followers are to bear the first fruits of new creation? The new creation that Jesus talked about, bringing and coming to, to light in this day and this world, that the new creation is coming into the world, that he's going to make all things new. We are the, the first ones who bear those first fruits. We're the ones. Us. Maybe you're like me. You're like, can't be me. Not this guy. Not this broken, jacked up guy. All these problems with sin. No. Paul writes words like guiltless at the day of Christ for you and I. To remind us what Christ will do. Has already we are meant to show goodness, justice, mercy, and equity to the watching world. We, as followers of Jesus, are meant to be lights in dark places. We're to be set apart. God describes us in, in the scriptures like a city set on a hill. This is a high and beautiful calling. We can only start to understand by seeing the saving and sanctifying and sustaining grace of God. See, we can be sure of God's commitment to this type of grace to us that we will be made like Jesus because Paul ends with this perfect note. Look finally at verse 9. Verse 9. God is faithful. 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, the faithfulness of God is what we count on here. For us, as broken humans, we can expect broken humans to be broken humans, right? We can expect us as little kids to want to grab the marshmallow. We can expect us to do things that just don't make sense sometimes because, hey, that's life. We can count on the faithfulness of our God. Today, if you've heard the voice of God and responded in faith to the good news of the gospel, you've been called to fellowship with Jesus. You will be sanctified. That chart might look like this, but God will make it so. And God will sustain you to the end. Paul doesn't just start his letter like this in 1 Corinthians with the good news of the gospel. He also ends the letter this way. Close with these words from 1 Corinthians 15. This is at the end of the letter, I remind you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you were received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Church of Christ. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that we do have these bold and very great promises from you. God, thank you that um, this life, faith, this um, desire to grow to look more and more like you, Jesus, isn't dependent upon our own efforts um, to kind of buckle ourselves up by our own bootstraps or just give up and throw up our hands. God, I, I pray that we would do the good gospel work that you call us to. God, to, to, to gospel ourselves, to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel, but not only that, um, speak the good news of the gospel over those around us. God, thank you um, for those of us here in this room. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the men and the women um, who even this week have spoken into my life. The staff members that I've met with, encouraging emails and uh, all, all those things that kind of go on behind the scenes that um, just go uh, in, in many ways unaddressed within the church, God. God, I pray, um, would you create in this church a culture um, of ownership for one another that promotes unity, unity first in the gospel, unity with one another, uh, that makes much of you, Jesus, and uh, makes knee-jerk reactions of wanting to encourage, um, that makes default mode um, of interactions with one another to believe the best, and to hope um, with gospel hope for one another. Father, I pray um, that even as next week as we gather together to celebrate baptism, um, Jesus, that you just be made much of. The beauty and glory of the gospel be shared, preaching of your word, the testimony of the saints, and um, God, by the compelling power of your spirit, work actively as we gather together as a church. I pray this, Jesus. Amen.